as a living. Or get busy dying. So can you. Sid's dead, baby. This was Sid's my dead. Get into something really bad. I have to go home. Yeah, he may be a superhero, buddy, but you're not invincible. You are home. Will I be lying to you for a week? I was trying to be romantic. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. We will not go quietly into the night. They may take what our mission? lives. I'm Mitch. I'm Stephanie. And we're the Film Underdogs. Welcome back to Film Underdogs. This week we're going to be talking with Darren Hartman, a cinematographer out of the Portland area. How did you get your start in cinematography? After high school, I wasn't really sure what I really wanted to do in my life I guess like most people yeah uh, I took like a year off after high school and was thinking like journalism something like that was just going to go to community college and a friend of mine just came up to me one day he said he was like a artist he was going to go to that college in Philadelphia for graphic design he's like hey I just decided I want to go to film school do you want to go and I was like, just thought about it for a little bit. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, that sounds like fun. That's pretty much how I got into the whole filmmaking thing. Just signed up for a school and started taking classes and immediately fell in love with it. And operating the camera was the most fun to me. So I just progressed from there and learned how to be an assistant cameraman followed everything my teachers were saying for cinematography and just tried to grow as much as I could. So were you really into films growing up? Yeah, I was definitely into movies growing up. My parents would usually take uh, me and my brothers to a movie, usually like every weekend or two. We'd go out and see something. I would say that was definitely more like fun, action-y and comedy movies more so than like your deep intellectual ones that I started to really get into as I grew up and matured more. Yeah, I think that's the way most people are. You're always into the uh, more fun movies, something is always going on kind of thing uh, when you're growing up. As you get older, you start looking at movies that are a little bit deeper and going, okay, you know, there's a different level to it, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I still enjoy a stupid comedy every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) You can't get enough of it. And I think it was, like, around the time that The Hangover and those comedy movies were coming out in, like, the mid-2000s, late-2000s, that they kind of started shooting them more seriously and put a lot more effort into doing, like, specialty shots and all that. And I think it's just, like, really brought the level of everything up. And I guess also TV has been kind of going the same trend a lot as well. They're much more cinematic now uh, nowadays as well. Yeah, definitely. What are your favorite films for their cinematography? There's so many, it's hard to uh, <laughs> choose just one, but I'll just try to ramble off a few. Pretty much anything that Terrence Malick has done, like Badlands, Days in Heaven, Thin Red Line, that's probably my favorite shot film of all time Blade Runner probably has oh, some yeah. of the best lighting I've ever seen in a film as well as a uh, Naked Lunch but it was the adaptation of William Burroughs novel 
I mean, it makes sense when you analyze it, but just going into it blindly, it just seems like a bunch of gibberish in a way, but yeah. visually it's such a brilliant film, I think. Kubrick films, oh, yeah. I think he was absolutely a genius when it came to uh, manipulating his set design to get the shot he wanted. Wes Anderson is great with that as well. Pretty much Deacons has a very natural kind of like a photographic eye for a film. I really love his style. Have you seen the movie that came out last year, John Wick? No, but I've heard of it. If you're recommending it, I'll go watch it. <laughs> if you like action movies, it's a really good action movie, but it's also got a very unique overall visual appeal to the whole movie. I mean, they use the lighting in interesting ways. They have some really interesting shots of cities and stuff like that. When they're just dealing one-on-one, there's some very interesting shots that they do, and it's, uh, it was surprising to me how well the cinematography and that aspect of it felt. It wasn't just your average action movie, martial arts, shoot 'em up kind of thing. It actually had a very unique and distinct feel to it. Yeah, I just looked up the IMDb page for it. Yeah, Keanu Reeves is the lead in it. Definitely heard of it. I'll check it out. Uh, just from the still images I'm seeing, it looks uh, pretty awesome. Just about every different building that they go into, they use a different kind of lighting. Yeah. And they use a lot of extreme lighting colors. Like, they go into a um, club that is for just the people in the hotel and uh, the lighting is all green and then they have bright red um, booths that they're all sitting in. Mm -hmm. So it's, you've got this interesting green color up above and red down below. And then another uh, club that they end up in, it all has um, different colors of blue, different shades of blue through the whole thing. They do a really interesting job with all the lighting and everything, especially in that, but each uh, each area has its own unique feel, and it it's a good movie overall just for the action, but mm-hmm. to have the uh, visual appeal, too, it makes it a nice, round, rounded movie, you know? Yeah, and, and doing that type of lighting on a big scale is really difficult because when you're using such saturated colors like that they so easily get washed out and kind of mixed together and become muddled but um there's another film that's coming to mind that kind of has a similar uh extreme use of color palette um i want to say shooter but it, but i might be confusing it with another film that has shoot in the title of it um I'm just going to describe a random scene. If so, if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> there's a, there's a scene where it's like on a playground and someone's like on one of those um, things that spin with the handlebars and you kind of just stand on and someone's like spinning around. Mm-hmm. And there's like a sniper that pulls off this just super ridiculous shot on the person that's spinning on it. And I think there's a baby involved or something, but if I explain that much and you still don't know what I'm talking about, then that then I'll just give up. 
Uh, that actually sounds familiar, but I it's been a while since I've seen it. There's a scene where it's like a long hallway, and like all the fluorescent lights on the ceiling are like flickering on and off, and and there's like a really harsh uh, backlight to it. Such a cool effect, but again, super visually striking for what was really sort of mocking action movies at the same time. Right. Later in the podcast, we're going to be doing a review of the movie Amelie, which is a French comedy, and I thought they had an interesting visual style to that movie as well. That was something I was noticing as I was watching it. It's a unique movie anyway, but then they've got a unique style to the overall visual aspect of it. It's very uh, engrossing that way, and it, they did a good job on it. Yeah, that, I haven't seen that film in what? years, oh. but it's absolutely fantastic film. Yeah. Oh, I just, uh, the film I was thinking of was uh, Shoot 'em Up with uh, Clive Owen. It was actually what came to mind when you said shooter, but I'm like, I don't, I haven't seen it, but that's what I should have said it out yeah. loud. <laughs> yeah, that movie, it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous and very entertaining. <laughs> it doesn't take itself seriously at all. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Days of Heaven. I've, I watched it a couple of years ago for the first time, and yeah, like they use natural lighting for that one, right? Oh, yeah. 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 This pretty much exactly why it looks so fantastic is yeah because they meticulously go and scout every single location and watch where the sun's going to be and you know have to choose are we going to shoot this today or not because of cloud cover and so on and so forth that's not what we want right now i'm going to butcher his name Ubeski, guy who just won the oscar for uh, the oh. revenant uh cinematography oh he's i believe that film was all uh natural light as well Oh, cool. I mean, there's no better light source than the sun. <laughs> so if you know how to use it, utilize it properly, you'll get a beautiful image every single time. Yeah. When I've done uh, photography, you get the golden hour first thing in the morning. If everything works out well, you can get a really nice color in the mornings, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... My issue with that, of course, is just that I never get up early enough to <laughs> go make use of that time. Yeah, but it's it's so worth to take advantage of the light <laughs> that it gives oh, yeah. you. It's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, especially when you're trying to like produce a film or shoot a scene around that time frame is always like the most hectic thing you'll ever do in your life. Yep. Because the sun is moving so rapidly at that point in the day that it's only like a 45-minute window at best, and then every couple of minutes, your light is completely different. So uh, yeah, usually that it, leads to fun on set. <laughs> it really is. Even for photography, you have to make adjustments, sometimes minute to minute, where we're trying to get those last shots in the day or first thing in the morning. You know, You may have to make adjustments to just make it actually come out the way you're intending it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you if you got a fast enough lens to expose and that's another really great look. I I really love the look of that. Very nice cool soft light. That's really even. But I mean, yeah, you got really have to plan that out. <laughs> yeah, everything we've done so far has been 
pretty much inside, except for a couple of shots, and even then, those few shots that were outside, we were usually pushing it to get it done before it started getting too dark to shoot, mm-hmm. and that's just been on little shorts, and so if you have that much fun on that, well, when you're coming to something a little bit bigger, then, yeah, you're really pushing it. Yeah. Speaking towards little productions and stuff, I was helping a friend recently allow him to use my uh, camera gear for a little like local TV production type of thing that he's doing. He's having issues with some of the equipment, and we're near sunset, and we had like one walk and talk type of scene to do. That was just one shot, and because of the equipment failure, it was just like watching the sun slowly go away. He's <laughs> like. You gotta just gotta get this done before it's completely gone, <laughs> and you know, and I mean, got it, but had to do it a completely different way than what he had originally intended. But sometimes on a small production like that, you just gotta roll with the punches. Yeah, that's something I've noticed is in order to get it done, a lot of times because the stuff we've worked on so far, it's all been. 48-hour film project or the 72-hour Guignol Fest, which is a horror film uh, short. You have 72 hours for that one. Well, I know (laughs) with the 72-hour one, the Guignol Fest one, there was a shot you had to do where they were, like, standing outside the door, and there were a lot of bloopers, shall I say. And so, yeah, we just, he was, you know, he were like, we got to get this done. Yeah, I actually had to, uh, I was doing most of the uh, cinematography on that one, and I just had to finally lose it and just kind of say, okay, we have to get this done. We don't have a choice, guys, you know. Just Mm -hmm. stop with the comedy, quit messing around, let's just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's always fun to (laughs) deal with, especially when you're in the AD role and you have to like, slightly crack the whip, but still not make any enemies at the same time. Right, you're right. <laughs> it is a, a skill that not many people have, but I greatly appreciate everyone that does. Well, like, with Mitch, he kind of evolved into the AD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Too. It pretty much boiled down to they had two cameras, and only one person wanted to use the camera. And so they handed me one of the cameras, and that was the only one that ended up working. So I ended up doing the cinematography for the rest of the shoot. And it's like, well, I don't know how I did this, because I came here for makeup. But all right, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's up in your pay grade. (laughs) Well, yeah, it would be if uh, there was money involved in those. But, (laughs) you know, it was was fun, and I learned a lot from it. But... Mm -hmm. I also learned a lot from it, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think no matter what level you're at, every single thing you do should be a learning experience. And, I mean, I try to consider that no matter if I'm just helping a friend with a little, you know, personal thing or being paid to do something. Because I, every time I shoot something, I realize something that I could have done better or a little trick that I learned from someone else. So. I mean, when it's great, I think it's great that you got that opportunity because not everyone gets opportunities all the time. So. Oh yeah. 
one especially not that far outside of your normal job Mm -hmm. outside of what you're actually there to do for someone to hand me a camera and say okay shoot this thing that was totally left field compared to what i was (laughs) there for you know yeah Mm -hmm. pretty much it's one of those where everyone has to do whatever they need to do and that's what it boils down to on it so but it was a lot of fun yeah and that's the other best part of it is that filmmaking can be really fun definitely yeah we've had fun everything we've done so far has been fun there's been some frustration but it's Mm -hmm. mainly been at the end of it we look at it and go okay well we did something and here we go you know I'm kind of curious, how did you go from shorts to get them to the Greek? <laughs> that was when I was still in college. A friend of mine, uh, Vanessa, she currently works as an AC on a lot of Netflix series right now. She was working at Panavision New York, and she was offered that gig and couldn't do it. So uh, she contacted me to see if I was available. And- And going into it, I didn't know what the production was. She just said, hey, there's this this movie shooting for like a week in Manhattan. Are you able to do it? I said, yeah, sure. That sounds awesome. And then I got in contact with who was uh, the second AC of the A camera team, I believe he was. Mm -hmm. And met him at like 5 a.m. in the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) I didn't really know Manhattan all too well at the time. And I was like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And he handed me the call sheet. I was staring at it. And I see a logo for NBC Universal. I was like, okay, this seems pretty <laughs> legit. And I'm looking through the list and I see the names on it, like Jonah Hill. And then I look at the director and the DP and I was like, Bob Yeoman? That's Wes Anderson's <laughs> cinematographer. And I went to the dude and was like, wait, is this the same Bob Yeoman? He's like, uh, yeah. Like, one of those kind of ways of, like, wait, you stupid? And who else would it be? Like, whoa, what did I just get into? <laughs> so, yeah, that that was such a, a great experience to have at that point in my career. I learned a ton, and the, the crew was amazing and very helpful to me. And it was awesome that, even though I was just sort of like a PA for them and just lugging 35-millimeter... Uh, uh, magazines all day, every day. They're super appreciative of what I was doing, and that I mean, I feel you feel like a peon in the, from that point of view. But at the same time, they appreciated what I was doing, so kind of learned like, hey, this is like how a real crew should be going at it and supporting each other. So it was just a great learning experience for me overall, and. Just so much fun to meet all these celebrities <laughs> just in passing and like and like at the end of the day they shake your hand and say good job and you're like, All right. I, <laughs> that's okay. I'll take this to the grave. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh that's a nice thing to just kinda of have fall on your lap. Yeah, and <laughs> at the same time it was like a affirmation for what I was doing and what I was being taught at school because like, hey, what they're doing is pretty much exactly what my friends and I have been doing on our short films, you know, just with a much, much larger budget and hmm. much more organized. But, you know, we're almost there. <laughs> yeah, that's very exciting. I mean, you also make 
the acquaintance of a lot of people who you may not otherwise. And I've come to realize just over the last year and a half or so that I've been doing this kind of stuff. You never know when that one contact is going to come in handy, you know, be able to say, okay, well, I need help with this or whatever. That's something that I found recently is uh, I've made enough contacts locally here that when something pops up that I see that someone else needs a person to do this task or that task, whatever, I actually am starting to know people who do that kind of stuff, you know, and it's like, all right, this is, this is pretty cool. And I've met a lot of people through this podcast also. That's like one of the biggest things about getting ahead in the film industry is just getting to know everyone that you possibly can and socializing and connecting with them and seeing who they know and it just becomes one large network and after you do a few things you just start seeing the same people working on projects over and over again because i mean whoever's in charge of hiring the crew is going to bring back the person that had a good attitude and did a good job you just it just kind of recycles over and over again and it's kind of nice to uh, be in that environment i think but at the same time, and especially here in Portland, it could be very competitive because there's such less uh, productions going on, I find, compared to like the bigger cities like L.A. and New York. Right. Yeah, because you're originally from New Jersey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like what made you want to move to Portland since you're saying like New York has more productions going on? It was just like a lot of what I was going through personally at the time in my life. I was doing an internship for a company that kind of burned me out. Uh, they promised me a job and didn't pull through with it. And I kind of like lost all my money trying to keep working with them for free, which oh, is really man. hard to do in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a, sort of a similar situation as I was describing before. A bunch of my friends were looking to move out west and asked if I wanted to join along and I said, hey, why not? I I really like to uh, try new things and just go in kind of blind and see what happens and came out here to check it out and I, I just really love this city a lot so I've been sticking around here since then. Awesome. You also work for uh, Banana Stan Media. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. A little bit after I first moved out here, I heard about Banana Stand Media from uh, my roommate. It's like, oh, yeah, there's like this secret venue, and I think it's nearby, but I'm not sure. I used to live on Division. A little bit down from where I used to live, there's uh, this building that has uh, a giant Andy Warhol banana <laughs> uh, painted on the side of it. And I was going by it one day. I was like, you know what? That might be that place you were telling me about, the banana stand. I mean, there's a giant banana on a building, you know, put two and two together. It just makes sense. Wasn't that building at all. <laughs> it was actually closer to where we we're living at the time. Yeah, what they do is their secret house venue located in southeast Portland. And they invite local bands or sometimes they'll get someone from like San Francisco or anywhere along the West Coast. Always super, super awesome, talented musicians that come through. Uh, Aaron and Louie, who uh, run Banana Stand, they're like excellent curators and really 
for they're pretty much tastemakers is kind of what they are. Yeah, they bring in the bands into what's essentially their basement and they have a completely professional setup where they record a live album of this band performing and I and uh, our group of videographers shoot the performance live. It's all one take. What you get is what you got. Hmm. Or what you got is what you get, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's always super fun because especially from my perspective as a videographer, I'm playing off not only the energy of the band, but also the crowd at the same time is feeding. So it's like very, there's a lot of synergy because bands feeding off the crowd were kind of feeding off both at the same time. And it kind of, and like, because it's such a tight space where we're pretty much standing in front of the crowd and I'm usually like, literally a foot away from the musicians so it kind of becomes a dance in a way where whatever the energy of the song and the crowd is kind of you kind of just move along to that and just find your shot based on what's going on so it's kind of a surreal experience and it's just an amazing and fun thing to do and I'm a really big fan of music myself so also now a huge fan of local music here in Portland. I totally recommend if anyone's looking for some good live music that's homegrown, check out bananastandmedia.com. And we have over 70 albums released wow. <laughs> to uh, this date and still many more to come. And wide range of genres and everything. But yeah, that's pretty much what Banana Stand does. That's awesome. And you said that was bananastandmedia.com? Yes, that's <laughs> correct. And yes, it is a reference to Arrested Development. <laughs> <laughs> There's always money in the banana stand. Except for this one. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't mind. That's the other cool thing about it is that it's like a tight-knit core group of people doing this. And we're pretty much all volunteer for the company. Nice. Yeah, they're also doing curated shows for Red Bull around town now as well. So it's kind of building and becoming much more well-known. So it's it's really exciting and cool. And just like in the couple, oh God, it's probably been like three or four years I've been a part of it now. But it's grown so much since I first started. Nice. That's very cool. And especially for something that is basically kind of underground and unless you know about it, you don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just fun to be a part of something like that and help and watch it grow. I remember you saying something about the film The Back Seats, that it was not such a fun experience for you. Right? Um, I thought... In some ways, it wasn't. Overall, I can't say that it wasn't. It definitely was because I oh, met yeah. I met quite a few great people because of it that I still talk to and work with regularly to this day. Been having success. Uh, oh, okay, it's done a festival circuit. It's won some awards, and it just recently was picked up by some uh, distributor, and it's on iTunes and all these digital platforms. So 
that's pretty awesome. I think it, from a not so fun experience, I think it's just the fact that you know it's it was basically a feature film that was pretty much shot by a group of four people, oh, that's right. <laughs> and that can become extremely frustrating and stressful at times especially when things don't always go the way you want them to you know yeah i definitely learned a lot from that experience it was a good test for me it was the first feature that i got to shoot we shot it with the canon uh 5d mark ii kind of had a lot of experience with uh dslrs at that point that was helpful because that's a camera you just can't go into something not knowing how to use it because it has a lot of quirks to it you gotta know about as far as the film itself it's it's a fun quirky indie film with hemorrhoids yeah <laughs> with hemorrhoids as a, <laughs> the basis of a, a lover relationship because you know hemorrhoids always bring people together <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's the thing with the hemorrhoid basically the plot is it's a high school rom-com kind of it's a comedy kind of in the vein of like a Kevin Smith film. The writer, director of the film is very huge in the Kevin Smith. So it kind of has that feel to it in the writing style. Uh, a lot of very offensive humor in it. So if anyone wants to check it out and you're easily offended, probably not the best movie to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds but, like um, it. <laughs> it's... Also based off of one of the director's personal experiences he had with hemorrhoids when <laughs> he was a teenager. So he kind of meld that into a love story where the character is trying to start a band in high school. And he gets hemorrhoids and he starts getting teased about it at school. Uh, he goes to his doctor's appointment to get it checked out and he meets a girl at the doctor's office and... Uh, kind of find that they have similar taste in music and you know their relationship goes from there and they you know they have their typical teenage angst moments and uh you know that's pretty much the gist of the film nice <laughs> love story based on hemorrhoids <laughs> yeah. love it <laughs> i wouldn't have guessed i'd be saying that phrase <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess that's the charm of it all. <laughs> you were talking about cameras a little bit. What would be a good starting camera? I would suggest, depend on like what your budget is, there's so many Canon DSLR cameras now that you choose from depending on how much money you have to spend. Personally, I would recommend a full-frame camera like the 5D Mark III or the 60 because that's uh, those are like two of their better models. Uh, but also there's like the 7D and the T5i or whatever number it's up to nowadays. I think uh, DSLRs are inexpensive, but also really powerful uh, cameras to start out on, and you get really great image quality out of it. You could get away with uh, like low light situations with it, and just kind of like practice lighting with that and move on from there. If you don't go DSLR route, what I'm finding now is that the newer uh, Blackmagic cameras are really inexpensive and also have like really good image quality and a lot of them uh shoot in 4k and a lot of them uh shoot raw format which is fantastic for uh, post-production i personally just recently invested in, in uh their new uh black magic ursa mini 4k camera and i'm 
loving it so far. It's for it's only about three grand for uh, the camera body itself, and for what it could do for that price compared to like a red camera, which will cost you tens of thousands of dollars to put yeah. together. If you want to really get into cinematography and you can't beat that price at all. I think they have a model that's has an EF mount that pretty much accepts the majority, if not all Canon lenses, which are relatively cheap compared to the more expensive cinematic lenses. Those would be my recommendations. The Sony cameras, like the A7S, I believe it's called, is another uh, line of DSLRs that, personally, I haven't shot on them myself, but I hear great things about them as well. Yeah, that's always kind of one of the first things you got to figure out is, you know, how are you going to actually get a decent picture? Uh, we've got some ideas for short films and stuff, and kind of been talking about how to pull that off with what we have available. My thing is I'm always wanting to know beginning point where you're actually dealing with a camera and not a cell phone <laughs> or a toy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which I can understand the point of going out there and just start doing it. But especially like in makeup, there's a point where you got to move away from the basic stuff and start dealing with quality. And so it's kind of the same thing with that. It's like at some point you have to actually find that beginner camera that's a decent quality beginning camera. It definitely helps to have something that you know is going to give you a good quality image because, I mean, that's just uh, the way that the industry is trending, um, Every especially now with everything moving towards 4K images. I mean... There isn't really many places that you can project or, you know, display at that resolution besides, like, I think YouTube will give you that op option to upload at 4K, but just to be able to shoot at 4K and, and down convert to, like, 1080s will give you a, a really good, sharp quality image. To speak to uh, the point of, like, not using a cell phone, personally, I would never do that mm -hmm. i know there's people out there that do but uh there's a film that recently came out maybe a year ago at this point called tangerine that was completely shot on the iphone 5 i believe yeah wow and it won a bunch of awards and really took over the festival circuit i mean if you're it, i think that really goes to show the power of having a great director and great script and great actors in some cases, depend on what the story you're trying to tell is, you could take any camera and, you know, make it make it tell the story you want to tell, you know? Again, personally, I would not go that route. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know the new iPhones have 4K recording now, but yeah, it's an iPhone. It's not a yeah. camera. Yeah, you're... It's extremely limited in what it can do. <laughs> I mean, there's apps that allow you to get more manual control and, like, lens adapters that you could put onto it. But personally, I would rather have a real camera to work with. Did you do filming or just photography at, like, an abandoned mental asylum or something, mm -hmm. right? Yes. That was... A few years ago, I believe it was an independent horror film 
that I got the chance to work on. We shot in Phoenix, Pennsylvania, and I know that the name of the asylum was the name of the town, so let's just assume it's Phoenix. <laughs> so at the Phoenix Mental Asylum, uh, had been abandoned since like the 60s or 70s or something like that, and apparently it was shut down back then because they were doing experiments on kids, I... like pulling out their teeth and horrific stuff like that. Yeah, it's just like this huge campus that's just been sitting there for decades unattended. So it's like, if you want a really legitimate looking horror set for pretty much no money, that's the place to go. Uh, (laughs) That place had character to it. And uh, it was literally falling apart. We shot a scene in this staircase that the brick wall had collapsed. So the stairs were filled with all these bricks and like you could see to the outside. Um there was a point where like a metal beam from the ceiling almost fell on my head randomly. (laughs) So that probably might have killed me if it touched me. (laughs) Oh. I believe that that film went through a name change recently. I can't think of what the current title of it is, but I think it's currently going through uh, festivals or just gone through a festival circuit. But yeah, that was a lot of fun to work on and a great experience. And I got to work with a great friend of mine, John Rosario, probably one of the best cinematographers that I personally know and has just recently won a cinematography award for a short film in L.A., He's probably the one person I personally know that I'm I'm pretty positive that he's going to get into the ASC someday. Wow. He's very, very talented. I think I found it. It's called Watch Me. Yes, yes, that's <laughs> it. I think it just used to be called uh, Asylum. Oh, okay. That director then recently did another horror film that's a zombie film, but the gimmick to it is that it's completely in the first-person view of the main character. Oh, nice. They shot on the Red Dragon, I believe it was. Mm. And I don't know if the full film is done in post-production. I just saw a short scene from it. Pretty crazy what they were doing. They had uh, special effects artists. There's a show where they have like a competition for special effects artists. I can't think of the name of it offhand. Face Off? Yeah, that's it. One of the people that was on that show did all the zombie effects and everything. So there's sequences where the person's running along the pool. They fall into the pool and zombies are jumping in the pool after them and cutting zombies in half with chainsaws. (laughs) And it's just, they just cleverly hid the cuts in between their outside and then they go through a door to go inside. So when the exposure changes, they hide the cut within that type of thing to mimic your eyes adjusting to the change in light when you go from out in the sun into the inside area. So I thought that was a really cool uh, nice. project. <laughs> That's kind of clever, actually. Yeah. They have that other one coming out from the first person. When we saw Deadpool, there was that trailer uh, where it was more like, it felt like Call of Duty, though. Oh, yes, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. I uh, I saw that a while back, uh, that sequence where he's that concrete place that's like a giant spiral or whatever. It's like an unfinished building, it looked like. That was like a short film I saw a while back, and I guess because of that, they must have got the budget to do the rest of the film. I mean, I'm just speculating <laughs> based on what I saw. Yeah. But 
uh, yeah, I also thought that was pretty uh, cool what they did with that. It was very interesting to see it, but it was a little too uh, video game mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, the movement and everything was just—it felt like they were trying to imitate a video game directly rather than make a movie from the first-person point of view. You know, right. and if that's what they were doing, well, they did a great job at it because. <laughs> That's exactly what it felt like. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a different technique than what I was expecting out of it. Yeah, also not my cup of tea. I agree with with that, but I mean, they're definitely going to have a market for that. (laughs) Because people love seeing things get blown up and shot at. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of video game players out there who will Mm -hmm. absolutely love that. You know, I'm into video games and stuff, but I don't want to see that whenever I go to a movie. It's a different technique, and it'll be interesting to see how well it does. Yeah. To speak of video games, kind of transition the topic a little bit, I also enjoy a video game myself now and then. I really love the direction that the video game industry is sort of going, where they're becoming much more cinematic, and the best example you think of is The Last of Us. Yeah. ever seen that, and is not only is it shot like a film the lighting is and cinematography is beautiful but the acting and the script are like better than most movies i've seen hmm. it's incredible <laughs> i played that and i was like i really want to get into lighting for video games now it was like really mm-hmm. inspiring to see that yeah <laughs> it's like how do i get into this <laughs> Video games are taking such a more serious turn than what they used to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it all has to do with the fact that they can do so much more than they used to be able to do. You know, there's a reason that Pac-Man looked the way it did and Mario Brothers looked Mm -hmm. the way it did. You know, because that was the height of the technology at the moment. But it's very interesting to see what every five years there's a new system come out Mm -hmm. that looked so much better than the one before it. Yeah. Which is yeah. it's great, except if you're looking at it going, I don't want to spend another 600 bucks on a new <laughs> system, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely, I feel that. <laughs> and just the cost of the game <laughs> itself, themselves can be kind of steep. Well, especially if you're going after them when they first come out. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the games that I have, I wait until they've been out for six months or so and the price drops a little bit before I go after it because I have a hard time spending 60 bucks on anything, let alone a video game. Yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing as well. I just recently got a a PlayStation 4 and I've just been picking up all the old titles that I get for like 10, 15 bucks a pop Mm -hmm. now. I'm totally okay with that. Some of the other things that started getting into is like on Steam I'm finding all these independently made games that are like $10 or so each and some of them are very art driven and more narrative based than what you'll find on like a console game like uh, there's one that I played recently called Firewatch Hmm. it takes place like in a national park near Yosemite and the story is to a point is kind of heartbreaking at times. I don't want to like give away too much of it, 
pretty much like this guy's wife becomes extremely ill. He kind of like gets drunk one night and something happens with her where her parents take her away from him and he takes this job as a fire watcher in a national park just to kind of like get away from his life and pretty much the only person that he has that you contact throughout the game is like through a walkie-talkie talking to another uh, fire watcher Hmm. and the relationship that they have just talking to each other back and forth there's just like all these crazy stuff that happens throughout the game it's kind of like a mystery and you kind of run around the park trying to figure out what's going on again like the art and that is gorgeous because most of it as we were talking before is a lot of it takes place the settings are like during magic hour where it's that golden sunlight on these mountains looking down at these vast forests and it's beautiful to just sit there and watch I'm really impressed with what people are doing as far as like the artistic side of making video games nowadays. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I know there's also video games that I've played that I actually get caught up in the art. One of the things that kind of amazes me sometimes is there's a few different games that are first-person kind of games. You go outside at night and you see all the stars and everything. And I grew up out in the woods, you know. I remember being able to look up at the stars and actually see it rather than being here in town where you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's times I'll get caught up for like five, ten minutes just looking at the stars on a video game. And I'm going, wait, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> right. But they did such a good job that it's like, yeah, I remember that. And it just kind of takes you back for a moment. So you said that was a Firewatch? Yeah, it's on the console systems like PS4 and Xbox One. I got it for the PC off of Steam for, I think it's running for $20 (laughs) uh, right now and just recently came out. So if anyone wants to check that out, I would highly recommend it. It's only about five to six hours of gameplay, but it's, it's just experience in a movie, it felt like. Nice. Did you check out the exhibit at OMSI that they have? The no, I haven't. Which yeah, one is it? They have, like, video games right now. Um, I went to the OMSI After Dark. I'm not really a big gamer, but the people I went with kind of are. And mm-hmm. they had a lot of the artwork. And then they had video games from, I don't know, from, like, when video games started out and everything. And then just moved up as you, like, went upstairs and everything the later games and and showing like Guitar Hero or maybe it was mm-hmm. Rock Band how like it progressed from this game of pressing the triangle X and all that to like yeah. hit the spot instead of having a guitar to do it and I don't know it was, it's pretty interesting you can play like all these games that they have there so oh, well you cool. just sold me on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds really fun I'll definitely check that out <laughs> I like a lot of the older games. I It's what I grew up with, so I guess there's that nostalgia of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of the new ones, they try and be so much more than what they are, and they just don't work, in my opinion. And there's a reason that a simple game like Mario Brothers is as big as it is. Took you down 
a little bit of a story, but not much. It's mm-hmm. go find this princess, and oh wait, she's in a different castle. Well, okay, you know. Yeah. But they're just fun and simple, and you don't have to know forty-seven combinations in order to make the thing work. Too, I I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they still make games that are really simple and. Uh, they look like the older games and all that. I mean, they have that one. What is it? Uh, where it's kind of like Frogger, but it's like for. <laughs> I guess I don't know what it's called right now. Like I thought it was like a chicken or something running across the street, hmm. but it was like a two D thing. And that like the two D games are coming out like more. Yeah. It seems like. There's one uh, that I saw recently called Shovel Knight. It's that two D platformer old school style of gameplay but all 8-bit pixel art or 16-bit I guess and again the art is amazing in it and it's just very humorous because you're a knight that uses a shovel as a weapon <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of like the, the old Mega Man games where you go through a level and there's like a fiend boss that there are different types of knights uh, Frost Knight plays this huge muscular dude who uses one of those huge uh, snow shovels as his weapon, flinging giant snowballs at you and stuff. It's it's really amusing. It definitely hits that nostalgic factor you're talking about. Yeah, I might have to check that out. It sounds just quirky enough. And yeah, do you have anything that you're working on right now that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I actually do have something. I'm currently in pre-production for a feature film. We'll be shooting uh, this August. Uh, It's currently titled More Than Only. It's a rom-com. It's about two male lovers. And that's kind of like the cool thing about it is that it doesn't make a big deal about that in any way. It's just that's what the story is. Yeah two dudes that meet by chance and you know like your standard rom-com they fall in love and the story progresses from there i'm really excited to do it i'll be shooting it on the ursa mini camera super low budget but we'll be shooting it all uh around portland and oregon city and we have a theater location up in vancouver washington totally super independent local film that we'll be doing and I can't wait until we actually start shooting it. We still have a ways to go. Nice. Yeah. Probably can't mention it, can we, about the mini golf stuff? Um, I guess we could just mention it. I guess this is where he put, like, a spoiler alert. He's, like, trying to do all these impossible tasks for him, and when he's going to build the eight wonders of the world, but on a miniature golf course. And we're going to be shooting that down at Oaks Park. And they gave us pretty much full access and like a time frame within a day to do all that and like shoot on the rides and stuff. So it's going to be a ton of fun. And we're going to actually need tons of extras for that scene. So probably see posts on Craigslist about that (laughs) in your future. Well, when you get to that point, send me a message and I'll send it out to the people that I'm hooked up with as well. Yeah, absolutely. The issue with trying to put together such a low-budget film, especially feature film, is just finding the money to pay for, you know, crew rates and stuff. And I always want to pay people what they're really worth. 
but at the same time one of the great things about the filmmaking community is that if someone feels really passionate about what they're working on that they'll do it for less or sometimes even for volunteer work trying to put together a small tight-knit crew that will be like our core group kind of like how it was uh, on the backseat uh, film but then there will be days where it would definitely need a lot of hands and a lot of help to uh, make this thing happen. Okay. Yeah, yeah just uh, when you have anything like that, just go ahead and give us a message on Facebook. We'll share it with the people we know, and we may even come out and help if there's something that we can do. Yeah, so. absolutely. Keep in touch about that. I appreciate it. Do you have a website or anything that you'd like to put out there for people to contact you? Right now, the best website for that to uh, see some of the work I've done as well as some of my friends uh, would be uh, bridgetowncreative.com it would be uh, probably the best portal for that okay yeah we'll put a link to that on the show notes as well great I appreciate that thank you very much for coming on it's been a interesting and fun hour here yeah Yeah. thank you so much (laughs) no problem thanks for having me this was uh, a lot of fun and you know, you go into something like this and get a little nervous, like, I don't know what's going to happen, but <laughs> yeah, it was totally cool. Yay. <laughs> well, we do try and keep it more conversational and not just, we don't want it to feel forced, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. To interviewee, that kind of thing. So we do try and keep it more conversational so that people are more relaxed, including us. Yeah. Because yeah, believe me, we... That. Especially when we first started, we were really nervous about it. It wasn't just the guest. (laughs) All right. Well, have a good night. We will talk to you here in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Keep in touch with you guys. Thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you, Darren. Thanks. Oh, man, let's talk about films. On this episode of Film Underdogs, we watched the movie Amelie. A independent French film centered around a sweet young woman who is looking for love, but looking for so much more in her life. She kind of just wants to help people out in some way and starts to learn that about herself. But then she realizes, oh, I should think about myself, you know, too, you know, I need to find love for myself. I can't just spread it to other people i mean that's kind of a way to describe this movie but it really is it goes all over the place uh so the director was jean-pierre journet and emily was played by audrey tato and nino was played by matthew kasovitz there's many characters in this film that they do a really good job at explaining each character like the things they dislike the things they do like just to show their quirks there were quite a lot of them to pick up on and it was pretty fast-paced movie but I enjoyed it because it was like very unpredictable unlike you know American films they have their moments of being kind of predictable I I haven't really been subject to a lot of French films or foreign films, but they seem to be a little bit more out there, more unique than 
the film's done in Hollywood, you know? But uh, I thought it was very well done, and it's going to be a lot to talk about, but we'll make it snazzy and and short for you all so you can experience it yourself. Well, let's start off talking about characters. I think one of the characters that doesn't get mentioned when you start talking about characters in a movie is the narrator of this movie. Amelie is narrated beginning to end in a way that each character is introduced. You find out a couple things about the character, what they like, what they don't like, that kind of thing. And it's laid out in more a just point-blank way rather than going through character development within the movie itself. You're not looking at her life and hearing the dialogue. What you're seeing is a couple of quick snapshots of any given character and from that you're told a fair bit about the character with not having to say a whole lot. It was definitely a different way of um, telling a story and it's definitely a foreign film you don't see anything quite like it in the United States that I've seen so while it was different I think that's kind of a good thing it's a little bit off-putting at first when you're trying to get used to it because from an American standpoint anyway this movie is just totally laid out different than what most of our movies are. Most of the time we go into a movie where we're uh, introduced to a character, they start talking and you just follow along with whatever's going on. And in this case, you're just being told, oh, this is what it is. Uh, This is this character. They like this, this, and this. They don't like this, this, and this. And it's actually laid out that way. And so by the time you actually get into the interaction between the characters, you already have a pretty good idea of who the character is on a general level. The narrator is actually really important throughout this whole thing. Definitely. (laughs) I remember thinking uh, maybe quarter of the way through it, you know, is this the way the movie is going to be the whole time? And after about the first quarter, once everyone's kind of introduced, you don't have it as much to where it's quite as blatant, you know. And it was just an overall interesting way of laying a movie out. So, you know, that's probably enough on that aspect of it. You know, we can move on to something else. But I thought it was something that has to be mentioned first because it's a huge part of the way they tell this story yeah totally (laughs) most of the tasks that she sets for herself to help people out you know make their day you know most of them are all all positive except for uh, that bully she gets them pretty bad there Amelie's character when you first find her she doesn't she's not looking for love she's not looking for anything all she wants is solitude She wants to be left alone, left to live her life her way, 
Which is weird that she's working in a bar or a tavern if she wants to just be left alone in solitude. That's kind of a strange thing, but, you know, okay. But it's finding a box hidden in her wall that belonged to a previous tenant in her apartment when he was a child. That's what sets off the whole series of events because she decides she's going to go find this person and give this box back to him because it had all kinds of little trinkets and stuff from when he was a child. And when she achieves that, she feels good about herself and about what she's doing. And so then she moves on to helping other people as much as she can. But all anonymously. so Yeah, for the most part. Well, even the blind person was pretty much anonymous because she just walks up, grabs him, and starts talking just rapid fire, describing everything as they're walking down past all these stores. She's just saying, this is what's on sale, uh, this is what's in the window, and just describing the things that he would miss out on otherwise. So I thought that one was really cool, but it's all stuff to just make other people happy. Yep. And then, of course, she begins talking to the artist, the glass man, Mm -hmm. and she starts to actually interact more with other people. And in doing so, she starts to realize that there's something more that she wants. Mind you, she's a very, she's very quiet. She doesn't talk a lot through the whole movie. Uh, She's very shy and reserved. And she has a chance encounter with someone from her past from years ago. They used to communicate using uh, mirrors in the sunlight. And so they've never even met each other, but they know each other. And so they have a chance encounter, and this sets off a whole series of events where uh, she's trying to um, meet back up with him, and I think his name was Nino, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, Nino. They're trying to meet up and actually interact and start a relationship and it's just kind of a series of comical events at points of things that are getting in the way and then her trying to get past her shyness to actually encounter him. Now the thing I did like about it was kind of the puzzle aspect of uh, the way they interacted for a while where they were leaving clues for one another. You had to figure out who this other person was. I did like that he uh, randomly worked at an adult shop. <laughs> it was just kind of like, oh, left field here. Okay, cute little uh, French film. And, oh, yeah, he works, you know, to make it. But they made light of it, of course. I mean, you know, that was the point. Well, and the thing is, they didn't really pull any punches about uh, sex or nudity or anything. There's a few scenes where 
it pops up and it's just it is what it is and they move on from it they don't make a big thing about it it's not sensationalized or anything like that it's just oh here's a random naked person and you know I think they made it more comical with any aspect about sex in the movie. I mean, yeah. what it was like, she was wondering about all the orgasms going on right now. <laughs> like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and then they just show them all. It's like, okay, sure. Yeah, and then there were, well, even just at the very beginning when they're doing the intro and they talk about the events that are happening in one given moment on September 3rd at this given time and they actually were talking about her conception they were talking about the sperm trying to get into the egg and then they show the um, woman standing there naked and you see the belly grow you know so it was just a very matter of fact this is life you know and I I thought that was a very um, interesting thing that you don't necessarily see in American film it wasn't overly sexualized or anything like that it was just hmm, this is what it is so yeah it's like it feels like the films in foreign countries that are made you know, whatever we consider taboo is definitely not considered taboo in their eyes. And it's just interesting how how that goes. Yeah, there's a definite difference in the way the human body is perceived in other countries rather than um, the United States. Some countries are more strict about it and you can't do it, but... There are a lot of places that are a lot more open and um, less prudish. And it's not that we have a bad view of it. It's just, I think sometimes it's a push too far, you know. We're either everything has to be covered or you have films where they show way, way too much and you're just like, I didn't need to see that ever. Ever. Like what yeah. film? Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. And to me, that movie, they showed more than what they needed to. And to me, at the time, I was... When that movie came out, I was... Uh, pushing 30 somewhere right in there, but I was still in my 20s, you know. And it was the first movie that really proved to me that just having naked people and sex in a movie didn't make it a good movie. That was like the first one that I really looked at and I was like, I made it maybe three quarters of the way through that movie and I was just like, eh, this is, I don't know what this is, but it's not for me. Yeah. I mean, I just saw it as, like, Kubrick being Kubrick uh, with uh, kind of going out there. I mean, the whole movie was, it was hard to follow at times, but then I followed it. That's, like, how it felt. Um, it was very, it was done very artistically, I would say. 
there was probably way more meaning behind it than look at these naked people this is gonna make this film you know popular or whatever like it was I just saw it more of his vision or something because that's Kubrick with his visions well you also have to look at it from a relatively young male point of view too it was one of those things where when I saw it I saw it with uh, the girlfriend I had at the time and for me it was like the only interesting thing to the movie was okay there's nudity in it and it's like eh that's not enough it it just didn't work but whatever we're not talking about <laughs> we're not here to talk no, about that but, but and there were things in there that it was just like I don't need to see that you know yeah I mean everyone has their levels of like watching film when I saw some movies in my film studies class um, right out of high school like American History X, Apocalypse Now. I think those are the ones that were like hit me pretty hard. Uh, but I was right out of high school, and you know, I guess I've, I still am whatever, but sheltered. You know, kind of lived pretty sheltered with uh, what I've been exposed to and cinematically. And yeah, it, I was not ready. I was not prepared for those movies, and. As I gradually got more into film and just, like, realizing, you know, this was done for arts or this was, you know, I've become less closed-minded, I guess, but there's still, yeah, there's still moments where I'm like, this is art, so okay, um, if you say so, but uh, <laughs> everyone has their vision, everyone does, even if it's bizarre. And uh, at least they had, hopefully, some fun making that film. That was bizarre. Something I actually also did like about the movie was the uh, cinematography, which we just talked about with uh, Darren. Uh, I thought they did a really good job visually with this movie. It had a definite... um, a warmth to it and certain scenes had a different feel you could scene to scene you could kind of feel what the characters were going through just from the um, way it was lit and I thought they did a good job on that and I noticed I really noticed the cinematography in a few scenes because they were just really nicely done and uh, very artistic, so you know they they did a good job on that aspect of it. One small thing that I actually liked also was the roaming gnome. Mm-hmm. Okay, because the the gnome there actually was a case of a garden gnome being stolen. And this person travels a lot, so they took the gnome with them any time they were going, uh, they were traveling on business, and they would get pictures of this gnome in all kinds of uh, strange, odd places, and they would send back a Polaroid of the gnome in all these different places. Well, the gnome ends up getting returned, like, two years, something like that, after it got stolen. Mm -hmm. And 
at some point, the person who took the gnome actually went there and said, hey, I'm really sorry, I just decided to have some fun with you guys. It was, you know, wasn't trying to make you mad or anything. I just was trying to have a little bit of fun with this whole thing. Come to find out that the person who took the gnome, it was his uh, aunt, I believe, who they had lost track of. No one knew where she was at while she was like, uh, in the same town and just in a little different burg or whatever off to the side. And so they actually found out that they were related and were able to reconnect after a couple of years of sending them pictures of this gnome in all kinds of different places throughout the world. And so the whole roaming gnome uh, story aspect of this, it's the same thing. You know, that gnome goes all kinds of different places that he doesn't go yet. The father uh, doesn't go. So I thought that was a cool little part of it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I like the whole thing with uh, Nino having that book of all the photos. I mean, I didn't get it. So it was people taking ID photos. I thought it was just a photo booth, like a regular photo booth. Yeah, it's just a photo booth. Uh, You can take ID photos for certain things in the booths, but for the most part, it's just just a photo booth. Okay, that's what I thought. And Nino was obsessed with finding the torn up pictures and putting them into a book. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, it, you'd think it would be creepy, but not, I don't know. It was, like, borderline creepy, maybe? But not to the sense where you're, like, this guy is, like, obsessed and has an issue. I think it was more, like, more interesting than anything. The characters in this movie, almost all of the characters are loners, Okay. Uh, They all have something that they enjoy doing, or a few things that they enjoy doing, but all of the characters throughout the movie are loners. They're people who don't communicate with other people very well, and they don't communicate with other people very often. And there's a couple of different romantic subplots through the movie between different characters there's the glass man there's the the grocer and the grocer's manager Mm -hmm. they all uh the father amelie uh all of them are loners they don't quite fit in the world and they're all looking for a way to fit and to be accepted and to have that excitement, but they don't know how to do it. And this is kind of the story of Amelie trying to put all these people together with the people they need in order to improve. And the story is also about those people trying to help her when she won't help herself in certain situations. But 
going back to your comment about the book, yeah, I found it kind of creepy. It, at first, anyway, whenever he's doing this, it's like, why is this guy so obsessed with all these pictures? This is, this is weird. But after a while, it just kind of became, it kind of, uh, it's his way of coping with a world that he can't quite fit into. And so, you know, is it that much different than the glass man and his paintings? He's constantly trying to figure out the faces for two different people in this painting that he's been working on for 10 years. And he's obsessed with getting the faces just right and getting their expression. Now, the glass man is someone who... Basically, his bones are so brittle that uh, any trauma whatsoever could cause uh, him to break bones. And so he's been inside for like 20 years and won't go out. He has his food delivered, that kind of thing. And it's all because, you know, if he goes outside, he might get hurt. And so he's become a recluse and he ends up helping Amelie just kind of the most out of anyone, I think. Because he's the one that finally uh, gives her the kick that she needs to actually go do something. Yeah. This might be spoiler territory. But, you know, when she's uh, she's just in her apartment making dinner, I think, and she's crying because she missed out on meeting him I think and then she imagines that he's there behind her I think or but then no he was there well he was there but like she imagined him but then there was a knock at the door and he was really there yeah it was just like yeah but then she was too shy and then he just left a note and it's just like oh my god yeah there were quite a few scenes where it's like for me, I'm a shy person overall, so I understand this. But even for me, I'm going, just talk. <laughs> Say something. <laughs> because they're face-to-face so many times throughout this movie, and neither one of them will talk. And so when it's to that point for me, where even I'm going, just say something, you know. And you're... You're obviously, you've got a shyness issue you need to work through. Oh, I did like her taking the picture, like in the photo booth, but she looked like Zorro, right? Mm-hmm. That was great. I don't know. It just felt like she was really expressing herself there, you know, not like, sure, she was in disguise, but it felt like she was kind of putting herself out there in a way, like, I don't know, being creative and stuff. Well, it was her way of playing, which she doesn't do, mm-hmm. other than skipping the stones, which okay. is, but it's not. Um, she doesn't really play or get excited or do anything unusual throughout the whole movie. And so this is one thing that she's doing. This is part of the puzzle and everything that she's doing to get his attention. And it really kind of shows that, wait, she she's playing and having fun and doing something that she definitely normally wouldn't do 
And I think this also is a big reason that uh, Halloween is such a exciting time of year for so many people. Because once you hide behind a mask, you know, you're in costume. People don't know who you are, in theory. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do, you can be more out there because it's not you. It's this other creature or person or whatever. Right, yeah. What did you really like about the movie? Well, I liked the whole puzzle thing with the love story part. Just, uh, I don't know. And I liked that he worked in an adult store just because maybe it played with his possible creepy side. Maybe it was like, oh, he works there. Maybe he is, not that people are weird that work there, but, you know, just to give off that effect. Um I'm rambling. <laughs> I find that interesting they worked in an adult store also because he uh, is overall kind of a shy person and yet he's working somewhere in a store that you've got to be, I don't know, it's a little more out there and unusual and you're dealing with people in more uncomfortable situations if you're not a people person and I don't know that's it's interesting that that's where they put him and he functions there you know yeah he doesn't have an issue there but except for when he's dealing with Amelie apparently because he's out in the open in an adult store everyone has their secrets supposedly and you know you won't probably see those people ever again or if you do you don't look them in the eye. Because <laughs> you know. You know what they did. You know what they got. You know everything. So you don't want to look them in the eye. Because they'll see your soul. <laughs> but anyways. No, I think it's like an adult store... I guess, yeah, if he has to be asked questions about thing, the products, there you go. Because I was thinking, well, if he's just like, here's this, blah, 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 I don't really talk about the products, it's not so bad. But yeah, I get it. I think it's just yeah, kind it's of in the shadows. It's an interesting uh, comfort level. Yeah. He's comfortable with that, but he's not comfortable with just talking to someone. But, you know, okay, that's so interesting. Love and we perry. Your hearts is hard to speak of. <laughs> it's hard to express yourself in love. That's when your true being is forced out and the accent is gone. <laughs> Alright, so let's go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, how many stars would you give it? One to five. I'll give it five because it was very sweet and quirky and odd and awesome. I think I would give it like four for me. The odd and quirkiness of it, while that made it an interesting movie and a unique movie, at certain points it kind of took away from it for me. Not that that's good, bad, indifferent. It just 
Um, it after a while it was like okay it knocked it down just a little bit and I find it interesting that you thought it was a the pacing was quick because a lot of times in the movie I thought it was taking a long time to get where it needed to go mind you I've only seen it I've seen uh, the movie all the way through once and then I started to rewatch it but didn't have enough time to get through the second time but that being said when they talk in the movie it's very quick and boom 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 it's just it felt to me certain things took too long to get to what where it needed to go but I don't know uh, four stars definitely it was very good and it was definitely unique and just different you know it's one of those that it's not what you see every day you know it's not the every other movie you see or uh, rom-com or whatever it actually is a just a sweet little movie and you definitely don't always see where it's going which is good you know it leaves you going oh wait what why are we here what's going on and then you know as it unfolds it's like oh okay this is a this is interesting so I think they did a very good job on it I like the cinematography like I said I think they did a um, great job with that made it very interesting visually which was almost a problem because the whole movie is in French so you've got to read the subtitles which like I said they talk kind of fast sometimes so you've got to be reading that as well as see everything going on also so you know it was it was alright I think it was my first real exposure to just a full on foreign film well not quite first but was it your first French film? definitely I think if not my first French film the first one that really felt like it was a French film you know mm-hmm. it didn't feel like an American film set in France or an American film set in London or whatever which I've seen some that kind of felt like they did that this was it just felt like a French film you know and that's a good thing it made it kind of immersive into this separate little world and um, you go into the lives of these interesting and unique people and get to kind of see where they go. Our next movie will be... Silver Linings Playbook. Pretty much my favorite movie right now. I haven't found one to top it. Just excellent, excellent, excellent. With Jennifer Lawrence. Bradley Cooper. And it's a David O. Russell film. So, you know, he gets his people together. Gives you a great story. It's unique. You'll love it. You'll love it, Mitch. Y'all will love it. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to it. You know, we want to... uh, Been trying to do movies that at least one of us haven't seen, you know. Although with Die Hard, you know, that was just my favorite film, so now we're going to do her favorite film, or at least favorite at the moment, so... 
it'll be fun to see it and it was one that I don't remember specifically why I didn't see it but it was one that I kind of wanted to see but just didn't so you know it'll be nice to actually have an excuse to sit down and um, have to watch it and see what it's about you know there are certain movies that something will set me off about it and I'll go eh, I don't know if I want to watch it or not and then I never end up seeing it and there's so many of those movies which is part of why we're doing this part of the podcast okay so that's going to wrap it up for this episode and say la vie adios amigos that was not French hey listeners be sure to follow us on twitter at film underdogs or go on to our facebook page film underdogs be sure to follow us on iTunes or Stitcher, Beyond Pod, whatever podcast player you use. We'll be there. Always remember to follow your dreams and stay inspired. Life reaches out at a moment like this. It's a sin if you don't reach back.